0: Welcome to Layers of Film, the show where masterful films are discussed by mediocre people. The first Monday of each month, I am your host, Austin Killian, joined by my co-host, Big T. Big T, how are you doing?
1: I am doing fantastic today, Austin. How are you? That
0: is that's great. I'm doing great. You do anything fun over the week? or the past few weeks, I guess. We haven't really talked in, in a bit.
1: Um, Not really. Done some nice hiking. Hung out with my dog. Aw. Nothing too exciting.
0: How old is your dog right now?
1: She just turned three a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I guess.
0: In dog years or humans?
1: In in dog years.
0: Okay, gotcha. What's her name again? Willow. Oh, Willow. What a good name. I knew exactly one person growing up named Willow from my elementary school days before I met you. Hmm. And she was really funny and cool, and I have no idea what she's doing now, so... Maybe
1: she trains dogs. Who knows? I
0: yeah, I mean, in a day and age where I could follow literally anyone on Instagram, I have never even tried to look her up, which is fine. I'm sure I would be disappointed. <laughs> what I saw. It. <laughs>
1: what a sad,
0: sad way to look at that. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you follow anyone like on Instagram or anything that um that you knew like growing up like like just random people? Um, like Facebook was pretty much designed for that. On Instagram,
1: no, I probably follow like one or two really close friends from when I was in like elementary school or middle school. But most of the time, it's just people that I've met within the past probably decade or so, maybe some people from high school. But honestly, some people will follow me on Instagram and I'll accept their follow and I just won't follow them back. I know that's not kosher. That's Uh. not proper Instagram etiquette, but I don't like my feed being filled with things that I don't really
0: care about. <laughs> no, yeah, one. I I totally agree. Like, I felt bad at first. It's like, especially on Facebook, like in the early days of being a kid. Like, oh, I gotta follow. I gotta. Yeah. Or I gotta. I gotta friend. Because that's the way it's designed. Like, if you accept a friend request, you guys are now friends, and you're gonna see their stuff. But now, I guess on Facebook, they changed it. You can you can unfollow people or whatever, but still be their friend.
1: <laughs> I don't know.
0: There's yeah, there's I quite. Know. a I don't. Yeah, I don't even really get on Facebook. But yeah, especially on Instagram and Twitter I do not yeah. Like, yeah
1: I feel like everyone who starts a podcast or a business or something creates an Instagram account and then they follow all the people they know mm-hmm. so it's like if you were to follow all of these people and then all of their side projects and then people create like Instagrams for their dogs and stuff it's just too <laughs> many Instagram accounts yeah. to follow
0: no it's too much i pretty much just follow like famous people that i oh, like oh i don't or- follow any
1: i don't follow any famous people either
0: on Instagram, really? Who do you even? What the? Heck? What are you using it for? I mean, I
1: follow like friends and family. Okay. On Instagram? Yeah, on Instagram. But I don't follow like celebrities. I don't really follow comedians I like. Oh, wow. On Instagram. On Twitter, I'll follow like comedians and stuff. But my Instagram, I don't, I honestly don't even use Instagram that much either. So uh, I don't know.
0: Yeah, that was, so that was kind of something that we were talking about a little bit earlier. There's a lot of um, just like, To to slightly get a a little political in a way not super political just just like general stuff um for me like i don't usually like getting bombarded with a bunch of political stuff like all over the feed and especially in the last what all of 2020 was completely political there were quite a bit of um famous people you know actors actresses whatever that i stopped following because it's just like you know what I just don't need to hear all this all the time. I already know where you stand, but I don't need to see every post that's about, you know, oh, I hate Trump. It's like, okay, a lot of people hate Trump, but is there anything you like? (laughs) Like, is there anything that you could just talk about that you like in the world? Maybe can we get a little bit of positivity?
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of people sort of approach their Instagrams differently because I know people that were the opposite where during the last like year or so if they were following a celebrity or an influencer who didn't say anything, oh sure, then they would unfollow them. Right. Cause it's like, okay, you have this huge platform and you're not going to use it to even address any of these things. But I mean, I think that everyone sort of uses their Instagram to their own hmm. personal preference. Right. So, yeah, but I mean, it can definitely be overwhelming when you just want to sort of mindlessly scroll the social media uh, apps that you have and then you're bombarded with stuff. But yeah, Another struggle of the 21st century, I guess.
0: There's a few people that I really, that I think that handle it uh, a little more delicately and that I enjoy because they don't, like obviously you can tell like probably where they stand, but like Chris Evans, for example, is, I, I, I enjoy his like Twitter and stuff because if he does get political, it's more of like, hey, you need to be aware. You need to like do your reading, your research and figure out where you stand on things. It's not more of like, He's using it to persuade you to join him or whatever, which is a little bit easier for like, I I enjoy that. So he was like one of the few people that I didn't like unfollow because it was like, Oh yeah, that is a good point. I should be doing my reading and research and figure out who I'm going to vote for or, you know, whatever.
1: Yeah. Um, I think too, definitely like people use their platforms differently and there's, it's one thing mm -hmm. to use your platform to just sort of like complain. And then it's Mm -hmm. another thing to try to educate people or try to, bring them to specific action as well. So I think that definitely it sounds like you're more in the camp of, please don't just complain about how horrible the world is, but really show me, you know, point me to resources or to things that I can do to sort of like make things better, which I think is a good way to approach it, you know, using it proactively and as productively as you can. But also sometimes you just want to scroll the socials for mind-numbing content because life is hard sometimes.
0: (laughs) And maybe, yeah, maybe there needs to be, and that's probably what's going to happen in the next few years: is a stronger definition with each platform. Because obviously, TikTok, what are you gonna, what are you gonna find? That's usually, po- I mean, I guess if you follow political people on there, but most of it seems pretty mind just numbing. Whatever. Just my stupid. TikTok
1: is so political.
0: Oh, is it? That's so crazy. In my head, that doesn't even exist on TikTok.
1: TikTok's algorithm knows its users. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's very good.
1: Yeah. So it knows that that's. Content that I engage with and I'm interested in. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mean, that's definitely how it works. You know, as our listeners will learn, I am very uh, interested in the social aspect of different components. So,
0: mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah. TikTok is also very dangerous for me. <laughs> I, yeah, I actually hadn't had a day like this in a couple of weeks, but or a night rather. I went to bed. Um, last night, and I was just laying in bed, and I was, oh, I'll just like go through a couple of TikToks, and sure enough, two in the morning no. rolls by. <laughs> and that was part. So, I, I was telling you this earlier, just like um, I took today off, and that was one reason why, because I woke up, my alarm went off, and I'm like, wow, I cannot work right now, and I don't want to, and I have PTO. I'm taking the day off. But on top of that, So my, my wife and kids are gone on a trip. Well, my wife has gone on a trip to South Carolina and she's visiting her sister that's out there and she's hanging out on the beach. She's never had like a trip by herself. And uh, there's been plenty of times where I've just been alone at the house, which is like my preferred destination. (laughs) It's just be alone and be at my own house and just do what I want. So she's been going to school for nursing and she's been working her butt off working and doing that. And so we set this trip up a long time ago of like you need to do something and go on a trip by yourself. So we we got her to go visit her sister and she's been gone and then her parents, so my parents-in-law I guess, uh they visited or they came and picked up the kids and just like, "Oh, cuz they have a really young kid too." Um and just like it's 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 her last week. Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing your confused face. Okay, so my my wife's youngest sister is 6 years old right now. Yeah, huge age gap. I did not know that. Yeah, it's nuts. It's so anyway, she's starting school up next week and so they thought that it would be great to do a last hurrah before her I guess I guess first grade year. So she did kindergarten, but first grade. She's entering first grade.
1: Wait, so how how old are your in-laws?
0: They yeah, so this was obviously a surprise uh baby. They're like in their mid 50s. Wow. Yeah, her uh her mom's Pregnancy was absolutely horrible.
1: <laughs> I'm not I surprised.
0: Guess, yeah, my wife had to help her out a lot.
1: How old is your oldest again?
0: Like my oldest brother?
1: No, your oldest kid.
0: Oh, my oldest kid. Uh, Callie is four. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
0: that's So, two nice. years apart. Yeah. Yeah. It is nuts. Anyway, so, so they thought it would be fun to take uh, both of our kids um, and, uh, and do like one last fun week or whatever. So, I've had the house to myself. The point is, I was really excited because this was a surprise, like, oh, sweet. I'm not gonna have kids. I got the whole house to myself again. And uh, my wife's gonna live it up on the beach in South Carolina. I'm gonna do all sorts of creative projects. Lo and behold, she wants me to paint the ceiling (laughs) in our uh, kitchen and living room area. And it's just like, (sighs) my brother Jeremy has been helping.
1: Oh so you're in the process of painting. We're in the
0: process. We 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 haven't even finished the first coat yet. And I I literally I finished painting like this this last part. I was like, "Okay, I got to record this podcast." So, um I got to go up and so I'm that's why so my hair is in up in my man bun cuz I got longer hair right now cuz I don't want it in my face while I'm trying to do this stuff. My wife's trying to call me now in the middle of this. Um she's going to be disappointed cuz I'm not going to pick up. Anyway, Um, I'll just text her in a second. I'll, I'll have you get on some kind of rant or something about, and then I'll text her.
1: My favorite thing.
0: Anyway, that's yeah. Long, long story short. I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted now and I'm doing all sorts of things that I didn't want to do, (laughs) but it's okay. Yeah, That's
1: a bummer. I feel like painting walls is okay, but painting a ceiling, that sounds no fun.
0: No, it's not. My neck hurts. Hey, but I've been eating everything that I've ever wanted that my wife doesn't usually like to get that often. So McDonald's has been every day, baby.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Living the dream.
0: I love McDonald's. All right. Hey, anything else that you wanted to mention before we roll in?
1: Nope. I I think I'm ready to get into it.
0: Okay, cool. All right. So yeah, first episode, first real episode of Layers of Film. Uh, The film that we decided to discuss is Edward Scissorhands. It released December 6, 1990, directed by Tim Burton. The screenplay was written by Caroline Thompson, and uh, the story was also by her and Tim Burton, and then composed by Danny Elfman. Popular, great, uh, fantastic composer. Let me read the synopsis real quick. An artificial man who was incompletely constructed and has scissors for hands leads a solitary life. Then one day a suburban lady, meets him and introduces him to her world. Uh, The big actors in this movie are Johnny Depp, Winona Ryder, uh, Diane Weist, I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. I don't know. And uh, Anthony Michael Hall, great supporting roles, uh, Kathy Baker, Vincent Price, and Alan Arkin. The budget was $20 million, and the box office earnings was $86 million. So not bad. I mean, for for. I guess a relatively smaller budget. The box office earnings was pretty decent. By today's standards I feel like that's not amazing, but it's okay.
1: It's no Marvel,
0: right? Yeah. Marvel, yeah, brings in like hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean this this makes sense. Usually like PG thirteen movies will bring in some more money, but this is such a unique movie that it kind of makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, it might not as it might not have been as financially successful as some of the bigger blockbusters, but Story-wise, creativity-wise, oh. definitely much better, I would say.
0: Oh, it's amazing. Something about this film, I feel like... I don't know. There's some films that are that came out around the 80s and 90s that don't really hold up anymore, you know? Because they try to do some special effects and stuff like that, and it just doesn't really look... Or maybe not... What is it? There's special effects. That's... Practical mm, effects? Yeah. Well, I... Th- yeah, I guess I don't know. Or sometimes cuz the practical effects are the things that I feel like hold up just a little bit better but like VFX, so visual effects, I think. Virtual effects, I think. I don't know. I I don't know what that stands for. <laughs> I could look it up, I suppose. But those don't really hold up anymore because what they were trying to do back in the day, virtually is just horrible today by today's standards. Yeah. Even like the original Avengers movie, rewatching that is um kind of hard. A little bit. So anyway, but this movie holds up, I think, because everything's pretty practical. I mean, there's some things like the neighborhood. There's like an overhead shot. You could tell it's a model, you know, neighborhood (laughs) when they're doing that. And then, I don't know, some weird effects from the castle, I guess, if you call it the castle. The mansion. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you could tell that that's a little weird in the background with one of, you know, the first shots of the film. And hold on, I guess we'll get that into that in a second. But also what makes this movie stand up, I think, to today is just how unique it is. Like even I think on your list of movies that you want to watch at some point is Top Gun. And I'm sure the music is so cheesy, you know, but and, and probably doesn't hold up as well. Like you could tell it's an 80s film, but this music is so unique. It works, in my opinion, like even today. It's crazy to me.
1: Yeah, I really liked the music. My wife actually didn't like it very much. She thought it was oh, really kind of like in your face, like it sort of never stopped. Mm-hmm. But uh, I really liked the music. I thought it was kind of fun. And definitely, um, the music definitely portrays the feeling that I feel like Tim Burton wants to portray.
0: Yeah. And like, it's, it's telling the story along with the lines that are given it's it's yeah I I think it's amazing Danny Elfman great composer I think he does a lot of Marvel movies now too so he's really you know he's a staple composer I guess hey do you do you have any memories this is your first time watching the film actually that's a good point Uh, okay so actually yeah so let let's let's get into that this is the very first time that you've ever watched this film I actually realized too that my mom had never seen this film either which is nuts to me To me, it's such a classic. I can't believe that some people haven't watched it, and you're one of them. So give me a top level. What did you think of this movie?
1: Yeah, I. so my wife and I watched it together, and we neither of us had seen the movie before. We'd obviously heard about it and were aware of the premise and whatnot, but I really enjoyed this film. I'm always really into sort of like quirky, independent, artsy ideas, even if they kind of flop. I just really like seeing people... Uh, try something new. And so I really enjoyed it. I thought that there were some pretty good themes and messages throughout. And I also, like you, Austin, I really enjoyed the music and a lot of the like color choices and things. I'm excited to discuss them. And I think it's a good film to start with because I think that there's a lot that you can read into it and explore. I don't know if Tim Burton meant to convey all those messages, but um, I think there's a lot of stuff to talk about.
0: Oh, for sure. There's a lot of complexity to this film. A lot of things that are straight up, but if you look a little bit deeper, it can be quite complex, I think, in my opinion. So, yeah, I guess since this is the first time that you've seen this film, you don't really have any memories tied to it. um, Unless there was something funny that happened with you and your wife when you were watching it.
1: No, nothing. No, it it doesn't bring any specific memories. I just, the the scene at the beginning where there's sort of like an overhead shot of the the neighborhood and the mansion just reminded me of the intro to Hocus Pocus.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Because we, we, we watch Hocus Pocus every Halloween.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, I just... That, As many do. Yeah. So that just, that shot kind of reminded me of that. So I, it was kind of fun to see that theme.
0: Funny aside uh, about Hocus Pocus, we were going to do a movie night with my daughter and uh, we asked her what movie to watch, what we should watch. And she said Hocus Pocus. So we watched it like a couple weeks ago. It's not even close to Halloween, but whatever.
1: Wasn't it like released in March though? Oh, was it? Yeah, because it was competing with Nightmare Before Christmas. And so I think it was released in the summer. So you guys actually probably watched it closer to its original release date
0: than Halloween. Oh, my gosh. Let me look. Let me look at this. I'm looking at it right now. Release date. Oh, July 16th. That is odd.
1: Yeah, it's because the studios didn't want to have the two movies competing. So they thought Nightmare Before Christmas would do better. So they released that towards Halloween.
0: Wow, that's crazy. Something that's just looking at Wikipedia, and just like it's, it's fun to see like who who writes it, who does the shots or the camera work and all that stuff. But something that was interesting looking at Wikipedia for Edward Scissorhands is I don't know, for some reason in my mind, like anytime I think of a Tim Burton film, he has written and directed it. But actually, I don't even think he I don't. I don't even know if he directed Nightmare Before Christmas. He directs this movie, but he came up with a story along with Caroline. Like in my head, Edward Scissorhands was written by Tim Burton but because it, the story is so unique in a way. But it was written by Caroline Thompson. So kudos to her for having such a cool, such a cool, unique idea. I, I mean, I guess maybe she never really envisioned Edward Scissorhands to be the way that he is. And so maybe that was all Tim Burton, and maybe it wouldn't nearly be as unique. But
1: has she has she written any other screenplays or anything?
0: As I, I think when I was looking her up, uh, she hasn't really done that much. Caroline Thompson filmography. Let's look at this. Edward Scissorhands. Oh, The Adams Family. Wow. I think hmm. Tim Burton directed that one as well. Homeward Bound: The Incredible Journey. I loved Homeward Bound. <laughs> 1993. Um, the Secret Garden. I don't know what that is. I feel like that's an animated film. I don't know. Nightmare Before Christmas. Wow. I didn't realize she wrote that either. Black Beauty, Buddy, Snow White.
1: So it sounds like she's worked quite a bit with Tim Burton
0: then. Yeah, Carp's Bride as well. I actually, I really like that film too, which is Tim Burton. Oh, and Welcome to Marwin. I don't think that that one did very good. I think that was, that looks like uh, one of the last like big things that she's done is Welcome to Marwen with um, Steve oh, Carell. Steve Carell. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess uh, there's, there's sometimes like directors, they just have their people that they work with yeah. like Christopher Nolan, I think him, his brother usually writes most of the fil- his films. I believe so. I could be wrong on that. And then obviously he's always working with Hans Zimmer for the music.
1: So, I have a question for you, Uh because you know more about Edward Scissorhands, but do you know where she got the idea from?
0: I don't. So, I was trying to look up some behind the scenes um, before this, and admittedly, I did that like a couple of weeks ago, so some things are probably going to escape my mind. But for most of those behind the scenes, she didn't really talk much. They didn't really talk to her, because obviously, Tim Burton is like the face of the film, Because what are you going to go? Are you going to go see a Caroline Thompson film? No, you're going to see a Tim Burton film. So they're obviously going to talk to him. And oh, shoot, I should have written it down somewhere. There's a funny kind of like documentary slash mockumentary that follows Tim Burton and his childhood. But it's 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 really funny. It's like 20 minutes long. I feel like it's it's called like the making of Edward Scissorhands or something like that. Or the making of Tim Burton. i can't remember exactly but you should check it out it's like 20 minutes long you can see it on youtube at, at first you're wondering like like they're trying to make it seem like it is a documentary and then after like five to ten minutes you realize oh this is all just a joke because tim burton is in on it and he's making making fun of some of the things that happen and just like his childhood and why he is the way that he is or how he comes up with his ideas And um, there's, like, weird disturbing stuff that the young Tim Burton does where it's just, like, there's, like, a part where it almost looks like he's performing an exorcism on his sister or something. Like, it's the weirdest freaking thing, dude. You should check that out. But I was trying to look – I was trying to watch that for, like, some more context. And after a while, I'm like, oh, this is not going to give me anything that I can actually use.
1: (laughs) That's so funny. Well, I'm glad that we can give credit to Caroline Thompson and, um, you know – Behind every successful man is a woman who worked twice as hard to get half of the credit right so
0: as as horrible as that is yeah i I think something big about this film and and why maybe Tim was drawn to it so much was because I feel like this draws from his childhood experience because I think from some of the behind the scenes is he lived in the suburbs and he felt like an outsider, and he felt like no one really understood him, and he was just kind of there. <laughs> And, and obviously Edward Scissorhands is very much an outsider. It's a little bit different because when Edward comes into play into the neighborhood, he is viewed as very special and everyone's flocking to him. Whereas probably Tim didn't feel like that. You know, he's probably just cast to the side. Obviously. I don't, I don't even know whenever Tim was a kid, probably no one wanted to talk to him. I'm sure he, I'm sure he wouldn't have been invited to the parties if he's as, interesting and unique as I think he probably was when he was a kid. I don't know. But I think watching some of the behind the scenes, that's something that Tim said was just like, this is kind of like, this is really connected to how I felt. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I think above all, I see Edward Scissorhands as a commentary about society and how we as individuals interact with one another Mm -hmm on an individual level but also how the overarching culture or social constructs shape us mm. into the people that we are whether we want to be those people or not.
0: I think there's a couple of big things that really dive into that whole theme right there. Number 1 is just the neighborhood women. And and it's kind of it's kind of weird because honestly there's like really only one woman out of the bunch that you can really pick out and you know is kind of a standout character of that whole women that go to the corner and talk uh and but as far as every other character i don't really have any of their names down and i'm in my head it's just it's just the neighborhood women (laughs) that's like one whole character right there and that
1: joyce and crew
0: joyce and crew exactly yeah joyce played by kathy baker she uh she's probably the only standout neighborhood Women that the corner girl, (laughs) I guess the the corner neighborhood women. I don't know. It's like this weird group. It's such such a funny thing because it shows it shows how dull their life is. That any small thing that happens, they all gather to the corner. And what I assume is their kids must like younger kids. They're just at home by themselves, just doing whatever they do. And they're just over on the on the corner just talking, chatting, about, you know, gossiping about whatever's going on in the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I think that you see how all of these women, and we're assuming they're stay-at-home moms, right? how all of these women sort of crave community and they crave interaction and they will find any excuse, right? The first time we meet Joyce, she's having someone come fix her <laughs> dishwasher and it's not really broken, right? Yeah. But all of these women are are craving community and it's ironic because the community that they've built is a suburb, right? Where they're separated by lawns and fences and roads. So, on the surface, it looks like this pristine, perfect community, right? Where everyone has their own space and everyone has a nice house and a car. But when it comes down to those sort of community needs and that social interaction, all of them are, are lacking that. And I think you see that in that desperation for community, regardless of why they're getting together.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's also a really good scene where it shows all of the the men go into work and it's all in unison. They are all even at the exact same time. I assume maybe seven 8 o'clock. I have no idea. I don't know. Back in the day, it's probably even earlier than that today. It's like, you could probably roll into work around nine most of the time, (laughs) but they're all even at the exact same time. And something that I think Danny Elfman does a great job at with the music is how annoying the music is, you know, just how like, just obnoxious and loud and just in your face it is. And it's just, it's really showing like how, in my opinion, how Tim really views just how stupid and obnoxious it is that all these people have the exact same day. It's planned out the exact same way. And you see it in the film as well. Like the, the women are talking on the corner all the way until like dusk and all the men are coming home at the exact same time. And they all disperse and go back to their houses assumingly you know for the time probably to make dinner <laughs> and get it ready for the man and and maybe their kids or i don't even know like that's the funny thing there are obviously kids in this neighborhood but you never see them go anywhere <laughs> except like in the morning like obviously there should be school buses maybe it's the summertime actually yeah i guess well then later on the film goes into winter time i don't know anyway and they have
1: they, they're at school, remember? Kevin does a show-and-tell. They do the show-and-tell,
0: but you never see them actually go to school. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like on their way, like that's not a part of the... They just show the men. Like, obviously, that's... I guess that's probably what they wanted to get at is how these adults just have the exact same monotonous thing every single day and how boring their life is. And that's obviously to show, like, how exciting it is to have Edward in their lives only to be cast out later on in the film.
1: Yeah, I think... Besides a a film that's about society and community, I also think that it's a film about creativity and individuality and assimilation, because like you mentioned, all of the people have these really bright, colorful houses, really bright, colorful cars, really bright, colorful dresses and clothes. And, you know, on the outside, they look bright and fun and exciting and creative, but when you really get down to it, like you said, they're all sort of living the same lives. And I think what's really interesting is you can kind of see that when you go into their homes, because on the the outside, their homes are like bright blue or bright pink. But when you first step into what's her name again? The main. Peg. Oh, Peg. When you first step into Peg's home, when she introduces Edward to the home, I at least was really taken aback by how sparse it was, right? There's like one couch, some stuff on the wall, but overall, it just looks like somebody just sort of moved in. And so I think that that to me is sort of symbolic of on the outside, a lot of these people look really fun and exciting and comfortable and cozy and stuff. But when you really get down to it on the
0: inside, they're just really empty. Mm. Interesting. I didn't even think about that. The big thing that I was thinking about with the empty living room was that because later on, you see Edward go into Kim's room. That's that's where he's going to be set up, you know, to sleep, which is kind of ridiculous because then later on, they put him down in the basement on the pullout sofa. Why didn't she just do that from the beginning? But whatever. (laughs) Anyway, and you look at Kim's room and it's very, it's way more cluttered. There's a lot more stuff going on, way more visual than the living room. And in my interpretation, it's, again, to create that feeling of we have everything put together. This this living room will not be messed up, right? Like, that's probably what the parents are saying. You will not mess up this living room. This will be in perfect condition if we have guests over. And and so, like, I guess you could read it as empty. For me, it's just more like that's just kind of the way it was back then. Like, on the surface, even, even the living room, in my opinion, on the surface is... We have everything put together. Right. I guess, I guess that was part of what you're saying. Maybe I just wasn't really listening very well. I thought I was.
1: No, I think, I think that's a good point, though, that a lot of these characters aren't living their lives in a way that's satisfying to them and fulfilling to them. They're living their lives in a way that makes it look to their, makes it look like to their neighbors that they're living happy, satisfying, fulfilling lives. So they, uh, Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like you have this notion of my sort of standing in this community is more important than my own individual uh, happiness,
0: which I guess could make sense because they are all gathering at the corner to gossip. And if you have anything that looks out of place, you're going to be talked about and you don't want to have to deal with it. That's something um, I don't know if this is just technically a millennial thing. For me, uh, I really hate that idea. Just like you're, you're um, oh shoot, what's what's the word?
1: Like your outward appearance or your outward uh, perception?
0: Yeah. Your your appearance must be perfect, Like especially with our family. If our family looks like we're going downhill or we're having issues in any way possible, then that's the end of everything. And it really bothers me how some parents can really take that to the next level and Basically, ruin their relationship with their own kids, <laughs> just because it's more important to have a great outward appearance for your family. It's so it's so dumb to me. Yeah, that's something that I can really identify with in this movie. My parents were never really like that. Like, obviously, obviously, growing up, and especially you know, because of the generation that they're in, there's there's a little bit of that. But I I never really felt like my parents were like you need to keep things. <laughs> and actually, knowing your parents too, I feel like. <laughs> It wasn't really that way either because I how can you when you have all boys? <laughs> you can't. Like I to me that's almost impossible. Like especially being in a family with all boys. Boys are rambunctious and nuts. Not all of them. I was probably more on the tame side, but we were nuts growing up, so I I would assume that my mom just sort of gave up a little bit on that idea of having a great outward appearance.
1: Yeah, there's something to be said about living authentically and being who you are authentically, regardless of how it impacts people's perception of you is a good thing, right? And kind of going back to your, your commentary about... The woman, the the women seeking sort of this like community or wanting to gossip because they don't really have anything better to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that all of these women who live in colorful homes wear colorful clothes, where they find their excitement is in Edward Scissorhands, who is mm-hmm. completely monochromatic. Right, mm-hmm. he's black and white from his face to his clothes, and I think that that's just really interesting where even when it comes down to what these women want, it's not even in a something that would be perceived as bright and fun and colorful. And I think that, I don't know, I just, I really enjoy how Tim Burton plays with color Mm -hmm. in this, in the show, in the movie and how it sort of tells a story on its own. And that's just one thing that I thought was interesting.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. And going off of that, because of the color of the neighborhood itself, yeah. Yeah. Just like adding that extra, whoa, we are fun. We have interesting things about us because we have such a colorful home and, and extending that to Edward Hands, not only with his own appearance, but the castle or the mansion that he lives in is super drab looking. It's old, it's dead something. Cause I watched this, I watched this a few times and the second time that I watched it, I watched it with my wife and something that she pointed out that I didn't really think about was that the house itself is so horrible. The inside state of it is horrible. This, the roof is like caved in, like it's really bad, right? There's a hole, there's a hole in the roof, (laughs) but the outside landscaping is absolutely beautiful, right? You got the shrubbery, which I also found out behind the scenes that they're not real. It's all just, it's all just fake shrubbery. (laughs) So that's, that's somewhat disappointing, but it also makes sense (laughs) because how are you going to keep it anyway? But you could just really tell that anything that Edward can do with his scissor hands, he's really going to take advantage of and try to make it look as beautiful as possible. His gifts, he he turns things to make it beautiful. Whereas all these other people, they have their nine to five jobs. That's all they do. And they don't. And so they, they can't really. I feel like no one has any talents. And you can actually see that with Peg. Even she doesn't really have any talents because she's such a bad Avon representative. (laughs) She does a horrible job. Even when she finally has Edward to practice on, it's horrible. And so like, he's the only one with talent, you know?
1: Yeah. I think I I really, I noticed that as well, that, that the garden outside of the mansion is beautiful, right? But what I love is that it's beautiful in a way that's unique to Edward's personality and his talents and his skills, right? It's not just another bright pink house, But it's a beautiful garden that's unique to Edward Scissorhands. And I just, I really like that, that idea. And I think that this concept of being your own authentic individual, regardless of everyone, regardless of what everyone else is doing, is just a really powerful theme throughout the whole movie.
0: Mm, Yep, I agree. Which I I wanted. Oh, go ahead. Well, which definitely speaks to Tim as well. Just he doesn't give two f's about the type of movie that he's making um as long as it's true to him and 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 what he does which is funny because he came up with some big people back um like some big animators in disney and you know i can't i can't think of anyone's names or but they went on to do you know great films and stuff and i think disney they kept him around tim but he pretty much just toiled away and did, did stuff on his own. Like he didn't really have a team. He didn't really work on anything. He, they just let him just do whatever he wanted. And he had like his own corner basically. And uh, and that was pretty much his days at Disney, which is probably where um, Nightmare Before Christmas came from. I don't know. It's so weird.
1: Interesting. I didn't know that. What were you going to say? I was going to say you mentioned... Peg not being a good Avon salesperson. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that as well. And what I think is so fascinating is not only is she not really a great salesperson, but I think in tandem with that, she's rejected by her community, right? She tries to sell to all these different women and everyone essentially rejects her and says no. And it's with this Foundation of rejection that she decides to go up the hill to the mansion. And it's because of her rejection that she is able to discover this beautiful and unique person who is Edward Scissorhands. And I just really love the idea that we often see rejection is really harmful and scary, but not only did Peg use a rejection to find something beautiful, but she also used rejection to build a foundation of empathy, to really relate to Edward Scissorhands and really bring him into her home and her life. And I just think that that's so beautiful that you can have something so wonderful as a relationship with Edward come from something that seems so bad in the moment.
0: It's yeah, it's, it's insane also, just going off of that, how open she is to him, <laughs> because if I well, number one, I wouldn't have stormed into the mansion in the first place because she just goes right in. No one's answered the door. Oh, I guess that's an open invitation to just walk right in. And she really like she chases him down <laughs> just to try to sell some Avon products. And, um, and and then obviously she sees him for the first time. He has his hands up. They're made of scissors. She thinks that they're weapons. She kind of freaks out. But there must have been a small sliver where she gives him enough of the benefit of the doubt, like that he's not going to. But I guess because he calls out, she's about to leave. And then he calls out and says, don't go. Right. And 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 then she turns around and gives him a chance and realizes that they are actually his hands and then just decides to take him in. Clearly, she's the best woman of the bunch of that entire community because i can't imagine any of the other people would have actually done that they would have cast them off right then and there and they must like peg must have enough of a reputation that if she will bring someone into her home then they must be okay for now (laughs) But obviously later on the women cast him out because of one slip up, which makes sense because he doesn't even know right from wrong, which leads to a hilarious scene from, oh uh, shoot, who plays who plays um, Bill? Alan Alan Arkin, hilarious, the dad, right? He's actually one of my favorite characters. Clearly he's like kind of just a lame guy or whatever, but um, later on when he tries to teach him right from wrong after after the big Uh, bust from trying to, I'm kind of getting ahead of things, but this isn't really, this is more of like a jump around type of show anyway. So it doesn't really matter. I'm assuming people have watched this film already. If you haven't go watch it. But um, when when he breaks into Jim's parents' house and, uh, and then gets busted, and then obviously they're freaking out about how Edward would do that and why he'd do that. They believe that he did it all alone. And then obviously... Word goes around the neighborhood and all of a sudden Edward, who had all these friends who he thought were friends that he was helping out and doing their haircuts and doing their dogs' haircuts and everything with his awesome uh scissor hands, they just they just forget about him because of one one slip up. They've all invited him into his home, into their homes, and and you know, loved everything that he was doing and then one small thing, boom, he's done. He's out, out of the community. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, I have a lot to say about this movie and a lot I feel like I probably can't fully explore in this podcast, but I think I would disagree with you. Uh I, I don't think, let me rephrase that. I think Edward knows the difference between right and wrong. Okay. I think he's always known the difference between right right and wrong. I'm curious, why... So, you said that. You said, you know, he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. Why why do you think he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong?
0: Okay, maybe not necessarily the difference between right and wrong, but what is ethical and non-ethical. Because, right? Because he shouldn't be breaking into someone's house. (laughs) Correct?
1: But... I mean, I agree. He shouldn't be breaking into someone's house, but the notion of knowing the difference between right and wrong isn't ever applied to Jim or to Kim or to any of the other people that break into the house. It's solely applied to Edward Scissorhands. And I just think it's really interesting that in the movie, you don't even... At least for me, I didn't ever think about Edward not knowing the difference between right and wrong until the psychologist says that about mm. him. Right? Yeah,
0: he, he doesn't know, right?
1: Yeah, and I think it's so interesting because you have this authority figure who's met Edward for three minutes. Peg And no, no, the psychologist. Oh, oh, yeah, sure. The psychologist barely knows who Edward Scissorhands is as a yeah. human or a being or whatever. And he feels justified in pronouncing this indictment of him, right? That he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong because he grew up in this mansion and never had human exposure and yada, yada, yada. And because a professional said it, suddenly everyone in Edward's world is so obsessed with him not knowing the difference between right and wrong. But I think he does know the difference between right and wrong. And I would even argue that he has a better understanding of what's right and what's wrong than the people in the neighborhood.
0: Probably, I I, I can agree with you on that because um, I, there's just some moral things that obviously other people don't really take into account because they gotta keep their appearance up, right? And so they just totally cast the blame on to Edward. I will say though, because even though Peg and Bill, even Bill, right? like just such a cookie cutter dude with a nine to five job uh, just, you know, welcomes him in. He considers them family, right? Edward does. And yet with something that doesn't even happen because of the parents that Jim, you know, basically tells them to F off and whatever. I, I don't know. Like, obviously he never really liked Edward in the first place. But because of that, Edward goes into a full tantrum mode and basically ruins their entire hallway, the drapes. He just cuts up the entire house, basically. So I would probably say that that's wrong. No. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like Like he knows, but he can't... Okay, fine. He probably knows. I can agree with you that he probably knows more what's between right and wrong, but he lets his emotions definitely get the best of him. You can agree with me on that, correct?
1: I can agree with you that it's not good that he cut up the house, right? And he cut up the drapes and stuff. But I think that I need to make sure that I word this right.
0: Why? Because you don't want me to feel dumb or what? No.
1: (laughs) I think that at that point in the movie, he has been portrayed as Someone who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. I think at that point in the movie, he realizes, maybe not consciously, but he realizes that this community has constructed a narrative about him that it, he doesn't think is true. But there's no point in fighting that narrative. So my, I might as well give into it mm-hmm. and I might as well do something. Bad and destructive because these people think that I'm a bad and destructive person.
0: Sure, and and he doesn't have a lot of uh, social experience. It's literally in the span of like what six months, I would say. Yeah. Because it's it's like the it's like the it's the start of the school year to the end of the first half of the school year. Yeah. So he doesn't really have a lot of experience with people except for the inventor played by Vincent Price. That's literally it, and pretty much his entire relationship with him was listening to him reading books and poems and whatever, and just trying to learn proper etiquette and whatever the frick. And that's all he has to go off of, which who knows how long that time period was. What?
1: So I, like I said, I have so many things about this movie that I want to talk about, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to sort of construct them. But I I want to sort of clarify where you and I are at right now, because I think this is a really interesting discussion. So Mm I think from what it sounds like is you're saying that Edward sort of, he didn't really know how to interact with people or interact in a community. And then he went down to the neighborhood and he sort of learned how to interact with people or how to like, quote unquote, know the difference between right and wrong. Is that what you're saying? Um,
0: not necessarily know between the difference the difference between right and wrong, he's learning it, like as it is accepted in that community, I suppose, or as it's presented in that community.
1: So, I let me. I'm gonna look at my notes real quick right here. Go for it. Okay. So, what I think is really interesting is in a lot of different movies, you have this idea of an isolated hermit who is perceived by. A close community as being really grumpy or dangerous, right? So think of the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Think of the Grinch and how the Grinch stole Christmas. And then, usually a, a person, usually a usually a woman, befriends that creature or that hermit and introduces him into civilized society. And eventually, the hermit learns oh, society's good. I thought it was bad, but in the end, society is good. And he goes from this really mean and isolated person to this really kind and not so isolated person. Mm -hmm. And what I really love about Edward Scissorhands is that it inverts that trope. Because Mm -hmm. Edward Scissorhands starts out as kind, right? He doesn't attack Peg. He's actually very timid and very shy. And then society sort of drives him to meanness. And so society sort of makes him angry, and makes him cut up the drapes, and makes him ruins the ruin the wallpaper. And then it's only when he returns to that isolation that he finds his original self, that he finds that peace and i think that other stories like beauty and the beach <laughs> other stories like beauty and the beast and like the grinch they sort of present society as this like healing overall force for good where good people win out at the end but in edward scissorhands it it doesn't do that like society uses him then they turn on him and once they no longer need him they start to hunt him and they don't stop until they think he's dead. And I think Mm -hmm. it's this really interesting commentary about what happens when you let a few bad people construct a societal system that is not kind to people who do not fully assimilate to society.
0: Okay. I can get with that. I can get with that. It's funny that you bring up Beauty and the Beast because that's that was one of the first thoughts I had rewatching this film was, oh, this is just the most unique Beauty and the Beast you've ever seen in your entire life. That's basically what the story is, except, yes, correct, it is like the inverse of of how it goes. It's so because there is no happy ending. That's actually one of the deep questions that I have. Is it right to send Edward back to be alone forever? Is it right? It's not. It's not. They just send him back, and that's so. It was interesting because when I was watching this with my wife, and everything's going down at the end, and uh, basically, you know, everyone's yeah, everyone's chasing him down to you know to just kind of get him away, I guess at the, at the end, really, because um, things are going down. He's like knocking over everyone's uh, shrubbery or whatever that he's he's created basically by himself for free. And then Peg, oh, and accidentally cut, that's right. So this is the big thing that really sets it into motion is he accidentally cuts Kim um, when he's doing the sweet eye sculpture. That's freaking huge, by the way, which probably cost them an arm and a leg. They must be rich. But although they do say that Jim's family's, you know, really rich or whatever, and they're kind of envious of that. But he accidentally cuts her and and then everything's going down. And then Kim and Peg are in their house by themselves while Bill goes out to search for Edward and she says stuff about, oh, I didn't really, you know, I really should have thought a little bit more about bringing Edward here into the, into our home because I didn't think about what it would do to you kids. I didn't know what it would mean for you and how it would make your lives complicated, you know, more or less that. And and And, and I think she says something along the lines of, you know, maybe it would be best if he goes back up there. And at that point, I was just like, that's bullcrap, Peg. You can't do that. You can't. You brought this guy out from isolation. He didn't know. You chased him down. You chased him down in his own home and brought him. And he obviously doesn't really know. Like, this is probably the most exciting thing in his entire life is finally having, maybe not his entire life, but finally having someone come and he can actually see someone from this community that he literally looks down at probably every single day and wishes that he could be a part of but he's too afraid and and then she forces him basic not forces him but just kind of coerces him to live with them and then to give him the taste of that life even though I guess in a way it kind of went south because he basically lived in isolation after the big break-in because everyone just kind of cast him off but to just say no let's just send him back up there that's messed up to me man you can't give him a taste of community like you should be like you brought him into your home you basically adopted him you can't just you can't just say oh you you know and i don't want to deal with that family member anymore let's let's send him away we don't need to think about him you can't do that he's now your family basically and he considers you family it's just crazy. Like that that was one of my deep questions. So, is it right to send Edward back to be alone forever?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think I think you have to ask yourself what is right because I think in an ideal world, Edward would be able to be himself and feel safe and part of the community. And I think that if we do interpret this as a sad ending of Edward being alone, I think we have to put the blame of that sad ending on a community that has failed an individual, right?
0: Yes. I agree.
1: Yeah, and I think you kind of hit on something that I th- I noticed throughout the film, this idea of Peg coercing Edward to go down into the mountain or go down from the mansion. And I think that... Throughout the movie, you see people coercing Edward to do all sorts of things. And I think what's really, really fascinating is the division of dialogue. Because this movie is called Edward Scissorhands, and he does not speak for very much of this movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a really strong symbolism for how this community treats Edward Scissorhands. They do not see him... As his own autonomous individual independent being, whether he's a human or a robot, they see him as whatever they want him to be. Mm. And I think that you see this in a lot of different ways. I think that you see this in the way that they interact with him. Sorry, let me look at this here. So I think the The general summary that I would say is that the community doesn't see Edward as an independent being. They see Edward as a tool to accomplish their own goals. And we see this really uh, visually, right? We see this when Bill is gardening And then he realizes that Edward can garden, and the next scene, Bill's lounging in a chair watching the game, right, while Edward does his chores for him. We see this with Kevin, who presents Edward at show-and-tell, and and he's super intrigued by this. And then an hour or so later, Kevin's like, I don't want to play rock, paper, scissors with you. That's boring. Look at all these cool possums, kind of tosses... Edward to the side when he's no longer the new shiny toy. You see this even in general with the men who, in that barbecue scene, they use Edward's hands to open their beer cans and they use Edward's hands to grill their food. And you see this with Joyce and the housewives. They use him for social status, right? They want his attention. But specifically, you see this with Joyce. She literally uses Edward's scissor hands to cut off her (laughs) top. And I think that there's so many symbolic moments where you see the people literally using Edward as a tool to accomplish their own ends. And you even see this. Oh, another example is with Jim and the break-in, right? Mm -hmm. They use Edward to break into a house. That's what Jim wants. And you even see this with Peg and Kim, who I would argue are probably like the best people in this show Mm -hmm. or the best people in this movie when Peg is, I think Peg is trying to put makeup on Edward and she calls the head of Avon and she talks to her and then she tells Edward, I've always wanted to talk to her, but until now I haven't had a reason. You see even Peg, who is a well-intentioned individual, using Edward for her own purposes. And even with Kim up in the mansion, she uses Edward's hands to threaten Jim and I think it's really, really fascinating that you see this whole community treat Edward as a tool instead of a fully fledged human being or fully fledged autonomous robot, whatever he may be.
0: Yeah, he is. He's just a tool. He's just a tool. And that's why if you see no use in your tool anymore, you cast them out. You just cast it away. You sell it. You get rid of it. It just And yeah, going back to the gardening scene, that was something that always stands out to me with Bill is uh, Kevin goes to wash Edward's hands and, or scissors, whatever. And, and then Bill says, no, no, that's a bad idea, son. You got to go get the oil. We don't want him resting up on us now. It's just a tool. Yep. 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 You really hit it. Right. And Hey, you know what though? You say, you say that Peg and Kim are probably the best people, right? Except, except they still kind of, they use them as a tool still. I would probably say Kim less so than Peg, because, yeah, Peg uses him for all sorts of stuff. The shrubbery, her hair, lettuce, cutting lettuce, just, like, all sorts of random chores around the house and all that stuff, which is what he was originally built for, but still, that's not what he wants. But I would actually argue that the best, best character in this entire film, and he's one of the standouts, even though he's only in for just a short amount of time, Officer and dude, shout out to that guy. He's one of the best guys, because... He he talks after after the break in he talks to the therapist and 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 asks like is he going to be all right out there and then the therapist gives his therapist answer whatever you know something that's logical whatever but he's but then officer Allen insists played by Dick Anthony Williams but will he be all right out there like he really cares for this kid dude he doesn't even and and, and at the end when they're all chasing him down and he goes up to the mansion he, and officer Allen's out like everyone just go home and he shoots up to give Edward that peace. Like we're gonna try to make sure that none of none of these people go and try to bother him anymore because clearly they have ruined his life at this point. Like he he had something he didn't know what he had, and once he had it, it ended up turning for the worst at the end. Um, although maybe maybe him finding love with Kim is actually a, a great thing that he can dwell on for the rest of forever. I don't know. He'll probably end up going out of commission at some point. If he has a heart, he'll die at some point. I'm pretty sure that's what the inventor did. He gave him a heart. Anyway, um, but hes he seems to be the only one, Officer Allen, that actually truly cares about this kid and his well-being. So, I would argue that he's the best.
1: Yeah, i I think that there's room for that argument. I do think we need to point out two things. One is that Officer Allen is the only black person, right? He's the only person of color Mm. in this entire movie. And Tim Burton is not known for diversity in much of his filming. But beyond that, there's also a notion of copaganda. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but pretty much this idea that every time there's a police officer in in media, they make the officer black because of propaganda for police officers. But setting that notion aside... I think that you might find, let me rephrase that. I don't know if this was Tim Burton's intention, but I think the black officer who is the only person of color that we see in this movie, the only person of color in a community of white people, Mm -hmm. understanding Edward's plight Mm. and understanding that Edward is not being accepted for who he is because he's different. I think that there's some very powerful Ideas going on there. I did
0: not even think about that. That's amazing. Yep, I I one hundred percent agree. That's exactly. You hit it right on the head. Wow, I wonder. Yeah, now I really wanna. I really wanna talk to like Caroline Thompson or or I guess. I wonder if Caroline Thompson had that in the idea from the get go, was to you know just kind of give a character that is different, um, from the cookie cutter white people there in that community. I think, if. This
1: notion of the only black individual being the only one who can truly empathize with Edward, if that's a thing that was intentional, I do not think we can attribute it to Tim Burton because if his yeah. track record says anything, he does not put race ideas at the forefront of his movies.
0: Yeah, probably not. Yeah. So
1: maybe it was intentional and maybe it was Caroline Thompson, but I think... I think. Want it to be. That's one of the things that I really like about art is that you can get things out of art that the creator may not have intended.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's yeah. still there.
0: No, it's amazing though. Yeah, that's oh, that's awesome, dude. I love that.
1: Yeah, I, I wanna t- say two more things about this idea of the yeah. society using Edward as a tool. Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting that Edward introduces himself as Edward and Almost no one refers to him as Edward except for Peg and I think Kim. But most people, for the most part, refer to him as Ed. Eddie, I think Jim at one point calls him razor blades. And I think that there's something to be said about this idea that not only do they see him as a tool, but they don't even recognize his own autonomy and what he wants to be called. And Mm -hmm. I really, really liked the ending where Kim comes out with the scissors and says that he's dead because that to me was a perfect summary of this notion because Mm. up to this point the community has only seen edward as a tool only for his scissors right Mm. and so they think that he's dead when they see disembodied scissors they don't need to see a dead edward they don't need to see a dead body Mm -hmm. because he's not a body to them he's a pair of scissors and so Mm. once the scissors are removed they are they essentially think that Edward is dead. And I think that that's a really powerful symbolism to this idea of commodifying the bodies of those who are marginalized in our community.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Given. Yeah. Cause I, I never really was thinking of him like as a tool. Like I obviously knew that people didn't really care about him as much when he was of no use, no use to them, but I never really looked at him as a tool Maybe that just makes me a better person than them. I don't know because I looked at him as a human being, but just yeah, that that was always something that confused me at the end. Just like why wouldn't they go check on the body? But with that whole theme in place, yep, that makes sense because that's all they—that's all he was to them. Yeah, interesting. Keep going. You had one more idea, or well, no, just
1: the the idea of how they don't respect what name he wants to be called, and this idea of seeing the scissors. And thinking that he's dead. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, and his his final act. His final act with the scissors with that community was killing a human being. That leads me to my next deep question. Do it. Did Jim deserve to die?
1: Are you asking me this question or are you just putting it out?
0: I want to hear what you think. Did he deserve to die?
1: I... I think it depends on what you mean by deserve to die. I don't think Jim would have stopped harassing Edward unless Jim were dead. Interesting. So in the sense of Edward needing to be safe, Jim had to die. Do I want human beings to have to die? Of course not. But in order for Edward, who was the victim in that case, mm-hmm. to be safe, his abuser had to die and it's unfortunate but um i think that he had to die i mean jim multiple times goes out of his way to harass edward
0: true yeah true uh because i think i i i, w- I want to say that probably in the middle of the first half of the school year i i would say that his relationship with kim was already over and yet it's still something that he stewed on for so long that even at Christmas time, he decided that he was going to go make a big deal and clearly scares the crap out of Edward. And that's how he accidentally cuts Kim. Actually, no, I think that's what they were supposed to do. But the editing is a little crappy in that way <laughs> because he accidentally cuts Kim first. And then I think Jim says, hey, or whatever. And, and then I feel like that's not what they were meant to do. Maybe I'm wrong on that.
1: I think... I think it could have been intentional. I think that Edward having scissors for hands, being who he is, he's going to accidentally hurt people, right? And I think that that's all human nature. Being humans, being imperfect, we're going to hurt the people we love, right? Yeah, sure. But I think that we see who Jim really is because instead of approaching Edward with mercy and compassion and understanding, he immediately jumps to Edward being violent. And I'm glad Mm. you brought up this scene because I think it's really, really important. What Jim says to him, and I wrote it down, so let me grab it real quick. Oh,
0: sweet. Yeah, let me hear it.
1: Jim, so Edward cuts Kim on accident. Jim sees it, and Jim says, you can't touch anything without destroying it. Mm. And to me, that's fascinating because literally all Edward does with his scissors is create beauty, and yeah. wonderful things, right? Ice sculptures, hedges, haircuts, dog groomings. He literally does touch things without destroying it. And I would argue that Jim and many other members of this this community are the ones who can't touch something without destroying it. Mm-hmm. Because they touched Edward and they almost destroyed him.
0: Yep. Going back to, uh, you reminded me of something, going back to Jim, did Jim deserve to die? Something that I feel like we need to take into account, though, because, yes, you're right. He, he probably would have never stopped until Edward was dead or maybe just back up in the mansion. I don't even know. Maybe he would have been satiated if, if Edward just went up to the mansion and never came back down again. I have no idea, which probably would have happened anyway. But looking at Jim and his home life and where he comes from, he has a rich family, but clearly his parents don't care about him. Uh, because they're willing to lock him out of the house <laughs> if he doesn't get back on time and he has to sleep on the lawn. Uh, his dad buys all sorts of cool stuff, but doesn't let his son play with any of it or you know, take take any use of it, which you see earlier on. Who knows? Maybe there's a reason behind that. Maybe he went and wrecked a bunch of stuff. Maybe he's just a really horrible kid, but I feel like you can't put all the blame on a kid who... Doesn't really have a lot of experience behind their belt, um, or under their belt, versus parents who must know better. They should, in my opinion. Usually, a lot of times that's not the case, but they should know better, and they should be they should be better to their own kid, and so obviously there's nothing that can really like, like there must be some really troubling things going on in your head that would make you want to literally kill someone unless they're viewed as a tool and maybe it's not even really murder in their eyes. But um, I wonder if there's just a little bit of Jim didn't have anything slash anyone else because even his best friend who has that van Whatever the kid's name is, I don't even know. It doesn't even seem like he really had much of a connection with him. He was was even used as a tool to just get him from point A to point B in the van. The only thing that he had was Kim. And when Edward shows up, Kim leaves. To Jim's fault, because he makes Edward do things that Kim doesn't want him to have to do. But still, there's a little bit of like... Edward kind of took away his only thing that he had. And I could see why he would be pissed about it. Again, it's his fault, but I don't know. That's that's where I come up with the question, did he deserve to die? Because he had a pretty complicated history and emotional background.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't really spend too much time thinking about Jim besides <laughs> how he acted in ways that I didn't think were appropriate. But I think what it comes down to is we have to realize that the system in place is what sort of produces a lot of these individuals who do or make bad choices. Mm. Because I think it's easy to say, you know, Jim deserved to die because he was, you know, a jerk or whatever. But like you said, there's a larger system at play here. And he is sort of forced to do and be things that he doesn't want to do and be, right? He has to Go home on time, or else he gets punished. She's not allowed to play with all the nice stuff because people want it to be, you know, perfect and pristine. And I think that there's this idea of having to assimilate in order to be successful and in order to be included. But in the process of assimilation, in the process of meeting all of the criteria, we want our loved ones to or in meeting all of the criteria that our loved ones have for us, we sort of lose who we are, right? Jim mm-hmm. doesn't get to stay out if he wants to stay out. Jim Jim doesn't get to play with the nice toys that he wants to play with because he has to be, you know, quote unquote, the perfect son. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can see this, like, system of assimilation even in – how the community treats Edward. And I think it's fascinating that one of the first things Peg does is try to fix Edward's appearance. Not only his Mm. face, but his clothes, right? Almost immediately, she, she puts him in traditional men's working business clothes, right? And then you see this sort of snowball. Sorry, I have it here too. They try to assimilate him with his clothes and then by getting a job and then by opening up his own business. But in order to open up his own business, he needs to get a loan. But in order to get a loan, he has to have a social security number. And then once he has a social security number, he needs to get a credit score and he can improve his credit score by renting a car or buying a car. Mm. And you see this really um, snowball effect of how dehumanizing it can be to sort of meet the criteria of what we think the world wants us to be. When all Edward wanted to do was cut some bushes And cut some ice up and give some dogs a haircut, you know? And
0: he wanted hands. He just wanted hands.
1: Yeah. So I think that there's like this really interesting idea of losing ourselves in order to become what we think society wants us to be. But in the end, you realize that what society wants you to be doesn't make you happy and isn't fulfilled. And I think we can see that with Jim, right? That he's really upset because he's doing everything he's supposed to be doing, yet he loses his girlfriend. He doesn't get the nice things from his parents' house or whatever. And I think that that makes him angry and that's justifiable that he's angry. Obviously, it's not appropriate for him to try to kill Edward for it. But I think you can empathize with the individual while also condemning their acts that they do and condemning the system that sort of turned them out to be that way.
0: Mm -hmm. It's weird. It's fascinating. Because anytime I ever watched this movie growing up, oh yeah, Jim definitely deserved to die. Kill that sucker. You know, he's an a-hole. He's like the biggest a-hole out of all of them but now watching it i don't know it's a little harder it's a it's a little yeah it's a little harder to just be like yep you deserve to die man
1: yeah it's more complicated yeah i think it's interesting that edward is the robot yet he's the only one living a fulfilling life right Everyone else is in these cookie cutter homes with these factory made cars with some array of an Easter egg colored home, all living the same lives, yet they have the audacity to think that Edward is a robot when the real robots are the people (laughs) in the neighborhood.
0: That is a good point, man. Yeah. Yeah. They're the robots. They all deserve to die. I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) No, they just, I mean, if you, if they could just wake up and say, none of us are really happy with this. We want something different and i think too you see that be with edward's presence in the neighborhood because suddenly you have this topiary diversity at least right you have all mm-hmm. of these bushes that are suddenly fun and unique you have all of these haircuts that are suddenly fun and unique and people are having a good time you know they don't look like their neighbor but they're still a community in that sense and what i find so fascinating is when they turn on edward they don't reject his creations. Mm, they keep them up. They keep them up, and that lady she gets mad when Edward cuts down part of her bush or whatever mm-hmm. of the on the in the yard. And I think it's really symbolic of how a lot of marginalized communities in today's society are treated. Because I don't know if you've heard this a lot, but a lot of times marginalized. Communities, Especially black voices, they will often say how society values their creative products, but they don't value the lives of the creator, right? People mm. will, you know, we are so quick to sort of commodify uh, black fashion or black language and sort of put it on as like, oh, I'm so cool because I do these things that were started in the black community. Yet when it comes down to it, we don't value the lives of those creators for in quite an array of situations and i think that we see that here in this community right they literally want edward scissorhands dead but they continue to enjoy his bushes they continue to walk their dogs who have his haircut they continue to have the haircuts that he gave them but they condemn him and they want him dead and i think that's so fascinating to see people do that
0: that's another thing that's another like i have it down as a deep question but it's more of a curiosity of mine. What damage did those two deaths and their experience with Edward Scissorhands do on the whole neighborhood? How did it affect them for the rest of their lives? You know, because clearly Kim, she holds on to it. She, she's the one that's telling the story to her, I'm assuming, great-granddaughter? I don't even know. Because that's, that's how the movie starts. Is it's, it's Kim as an old woman telling the story. To a younger kid, uh, yeah, presumably her her grand great granddaughter or something like that, about uh, why it's snowing and you know the mansion up on the hill and the origins of it and and that's that's what this whole story is. That's how this whole story is. That's the context of how the story is being told. In my mind, it should be through Kim's voice. I'm assuming this is how Kim views the whole situation. Mm-hmm. I think in behind the scenes, I did see. Tim said that it's actually through Edward's eyes. I don't quite get that because Kim's literally the one that's telling the story, but whatever. Um, I I forgot the whole point of why I was even getting on <laughs> that. Um, but, um, oh yeah. How do you think it affected the whole neighborhood, the whole community after that?
1: After Jim is killed and Edward goes back up to the mansion?
0: That entire, yeah, that entire, what, five-month five, five month span, how, do they, how, do, how, how did it affect the rest of their lives? Do you think that they learned anything from it?
1: I mean, I would hope that they learned from it, but if their behavior during the rest of the movie is anything, I think that they are going to construct a narrative that creates them as the good guys and Edward as the mm-hmm. bad guy, and they're not going to critically assess any of their actions. And I think... You kind of see this habit with Bill because he never listens to his wife and he never listens to Edward when they're t- when they're talking. He just hears what he wants to hear. There's that whole scene in the diner after they have that after Joyce and Edward <laughs> have that bring this sexual encounter. And yeah. Edward's like Bill Bill asks, how was the business? And Edward mentions she, she got she, I had to cut her shirt off or whatever and Bill's response is oh opening a business and being your own boss is so satisfying so i think if that's any indicator people aren't going to change because i mean unfortunately and i i think this goes back to what i was saying before this whole idea of society if we don't really step back and critically analyze the good things and the bad things we're doing society will harm people and maintain the status quo regardless of that harm
0: mm, yeah i mean It probably didn't do... I think it only affected Kim and that's it. (laughs) That's it because she was the only... I mean, she she was probably the only person that used Edward less as a tool and really saw him and loved him. I think... Yeah, she says that at the end. Like, I love you or whatever. And then that's it. Yeah. And that's pretty much much the end. So I, I would assume that this was... Obviously she must have moved on because she's probably speaking to her great-granddaughter so I'm guessing she got married who knows to who obviously not Jim he's dead um I don't know you, you don't really see maybe Jim's friend who drives the van who knows yeah but maybe but she holds on to this she holds on to Edward and she must dwell on it quite a bit
1: yeah i think this idea of do you think they changed in the end i i don't know if they changed in the end But at the end of the day, I think the question that we should ask is, did this change Edward? Mm -hmm. Because out of the many sort of themes and the lessons we learn here, I think there's this underlying question about changing who you fundamentally are to please the people around you. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, Edward goes back to his castle, and he is changed, but he's changed for the better, I would say. He now knows that he loves making ice sculptures, and that's a lesson that he learned. And he embraced the ice sculptures. He didn't embrace the haircuts that people wanted. He didn't embrace the dog grooming that people wanted or even the hedge cutting, although he had kind of already been doing that. But he really took from the community what he wanted. And I think it's so easy for us as humans to craft our identities and our personas and our lives around what we think other people want. But I think that there's a really impactful two scenes in this that sort of highlight why that's not a good idea, why that's futile. futile. And I would say it's the old man that we meet in the barbecue, I don't know if you remember this but he's oh. Edward is grilling and the old man's talking about the hands or whatever and the old man says something along the lines of don't let anyone tell you you have a handicap. Oh yeah. And trying to really like bolster Edward for being so unique and like really saying like Edward I support you and I think that you don't have a handicap or whatever. But then at the end of the movie what does he say? He says did they catch the cripple? And suddenly mm. This old man oh, wow. who was saying, don't let t- people tell you that you have a handicap is now literally the person saying that he has a handicap. And I think there's this concept called deconstructionism. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, oh, this, no, I- no, I haven't. it's this idea where if you can take a piece of evidence and argue two completely opposite points, then any argument can be made about that piece of evidence, essentially saying that nothing that exists in the world exists as it truly is. We interpret everything that we see to be, to fit whatever narrative we want. Mm. And I think that this man saying, don't let anyone call you a cripple and then saying you're a cripple, like is really strong evidence that you shouldn't live your life to please other people because at the end of the day, they're going to construct whatever narrative they want around you. And they're going mm. to use evidence to build whatever narrative they want. So you might as well just be happy and do what you want to do because if you live for other people, you're always going to be disappointed.
0: Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't even think about that with that old man. That guy creeps me out by the way. Like, especially he's just like telling Kevin because <laughs> he's just trying to walk home from uh, playing at a friend's house. Do they, catch, do they catch the cripple? And he's like, what? He's so creepy. <laughs> and, uh, with the hands. Yeah, and it's like, well, just let us know if they catch him. Let us all know. It's like the creepiest. <laughs> that guy, I have no idea. Clearly, I don't think he's married anymore. It doesn't look like it, or or, or his wife has passed away or something. But that guy, I don't even want to know. They could make a whole series on probably all the dead bodies that he has in his house. and. <laughs>
1: I'd watch it, a new spinoff yeah, on nice. AMC.
0: Actually, as we were talking about um, the aftermath and, and what might be going on in this community's uh, lives, I guess, after after all of this, I kind of do, like, if they were ever going to do anything with Edward Scissorhands again, which, honestly, I, I probably wouldn't want because I think it's so perfect to me as a standalone film, if they were going to do anything, I would not want to see Edward Scissorhands' son or Edward Scissorhands' again, played by Timothy Chalamet, which which they did for a commercial, I think. But um, I would honestly, I would be down to see just the aftermath of the community a little bit. Like, I would be interested to see, like, I don't want to ever see Edward Scissorhands' again, but I would be interested to see just the community because it kind of would make sense at all. I feel like, I feel like they're all still alive. I could be wrong. And Winona Ryder would just be older. And just, it'd be really interesting to see like just how it is, you know, with, with them and their, if they learned anything, did they learn anything? Probably not. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe it'd be interesting to just like see them. And then all of a sudden it's snowing. And I would assume that everyone probably feels like Edward is still alive because it's snowing because, because, Kim, Maybe it's only with Kim because that's what Kim says. It's like, oh, I think he's still alive because before Edward came down uh, or went back up there or whatever, like it never snowed. But now it snows, you know, like whenever, I I don't know, or every Christmas, I can't remember exactly what she says. And I would assume that everyone else in the community would make that connection as well, that after he's gone up there, that uh, it started snowing and so he's probably still alive and they're probably super old and just like, well, he's still up there. Maybe not because they all believe that he's dead and Kim's the only one that really knew the snow thing because he was carving the ice. I mean, or maybe this
1: goes back to how they don't see him as a person. Mm -hmm. They like the snow. He's a tool that gives them snow and so we don't care if he's alive because the only the only interaction we have with him is something that benefits us. So yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I I think it would be really interesting to see the aftermath in the community. Maybe you can send an email to Tim Burton and try to, Oh, I don't want
0: Tim Burton to do anything with this, to be honest. I feel like he's, He's he's out of his prime and he's not going to make anything good ever again. No, personally. you
1: just got to ask him for permission and you can film it yourself. Oh. Write the screenplay, send it to him in an email.
0: That's actually so something that I was thinking that would be a great side effect from this the show is maybe actually learning like themes and stuff, <laughs> and what I feel like makes a good story and actually taking away from each thing that we cover and be like, oh, this would this like I could take this piece and this piece and this piece and that's what I feel like makes a great film is how they use the music in this way or how they use the writing in this way and subtle details and stuff. So, uh, as of right now, I definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't make this, uh, aftermath TV Netflix series or whatever, but Hey, maybe, maybe in a few years, who knows? if we're still doing this show, I would, uh, I could be good enough. Okay. So, uh, I wanted to just kind of run through a few favorite moments. Number one, Peg's Avon visits at the very beginning is really funny. We kind of touched on that, but the very first one with the, I don't even know what her, her name is. The one that looks like obviously doesn't use makeup and stuff like that. I can't remember her name. And she says that at the very beginning. And it's just funny how Peg is just going into her whole, you know, spiel and everything. And then she's like, oh Peg, you know, you know, I don't buy anything from you. And she's like, I know, bye, bye. It's like, (laughs) it's just like this hilarious exchange that I think uh, just really sums up Peg in a way. She's just really trying, I think, but she just never really gets anything. Even she doesn't really get anything out of this community. That's another question that I have. Are they actually friends? Is she friends with anyone? Does there does any of their family really have any friends besides Kevin and Cam? I guess I don't even know the parents. I don't. I honestly don't think that they really interact with any of the community until Edward shows up.
1: Yeah, I think that that. Is intentional, and I think it's to show how in this community, in quotes, they all of their relationships are transactional. They don't have real relationships with any of their neighbors. And I think it goes back to this idea of we can construct this community that looks so pretty and nice on the outside, but if we don't have any real relationships, if we don't have any real sense of community, like what's the point?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I, I, that is actually something that I wonder with um, the aftermath. I wonder if that family has has a relationship with those community members afterwards. Maybe because usually a lot of the time, like if if people have gone through a shared uh, devastating experience or something like that, that usually brings them together in a way and they can kind of talk about that and, and uh, not necessarily reminisce on that, but connect through that as well. So I wonder if they're all kind of deeply connected now. Hopefully Edward taught them something. But also um, I wanted to I wanted to talk about Edward's car ride into town, which I think is hilarious. you see like a kid water sli- uh, going on a water slide and then he he points over at it and then pegs like whoa! it's like the most it's the it's the most perfect like shot scene I think in my opinion of the entire like the whole that whole car ride is just hilarious and how he uh sees something else I can't remember maybe a dog or something and then he just he he doesn't understand what a car is so he doesn't understand like windows and stuff and I think he like runs his face into the window and is like whoa like there's there's something or maybe not even the window maybe it's just the roof of the car that's hilarious to me um something else happens I can't remember but that whole car ride is hilarious yeah
1: it reminds me of when you see like a baby sort of learning to walk or something for the first time and it's just so comical because you they don't know what they're doing right and I see Mm -hmm. I think it's a really like pure moment with us when we get to see edward sort of experienced this community and these new things for the first time so yeah i really enjoyed that part too
0: yeah and the music's so good too in that in that moment as well it's just like yeah you really see his excitement this it must be a huge moment for him because he's imagined this community for so long and what he believes of it and uh it's just super exciting uh for him so you can really see that on his face johnny as controversial as Johnny Depp is right now, um, he does such a fantastic job with Edward. Like, you can't even really... He doesn't even feel like Johnny Depp at all. He's, he's Edward Scissorhands. And just the excitement on his face. And as you pointed out earlier, with the lack of lines, he really gets across exactly what he's thinking and feeling in the moment with just his expressions. It's amazing. Really great. Really great job. Also, Kim coming home from the camping trip and seeing Edward for the first time and that whole sequence of her just yelling and then he comes out of the room and she starts freaking out even more and it's just so good and then of course Edwards first drink <laughs> it's just lemonade it's lemonade it's so good oh and i love i love bill's like like oh drink this up like it's lemonade or something like that and he's he starts to go take a sip and then he like he ducks his head and like looks up at the stairs and's like is anyone coming do i hear anyone i don't want to get in trouble <laughs> It's so good. Um, Oh, and then I guess a really big moment actually is uh, Edwards. This raises maybe the last question, and we could probably start wrapping it up from there. Um, Edwards TV interview. This is a really big thing because, as we've said before, I think it's really important to celebrate our differences, right? And our unique abilities, our, our, our characteristics that make us unique. We, we talked about this. And yet Edward, the most unique person out of the bunch, has really always wanted to just be normal. And he says that in the interview. Someone mentions uh, something about a doctor being able to fix him up, as everyone actually does. Pretty much everyone that he interacts with, oh, I, I know a doctor. I wonder, it's all, I wonder if it's the exact same doctor that everyone knows, but um, that, that can fix you and give you hands and stuff. And uh, he says that he'd like that. And then... From there, there's this whole cascading like uh, effect of of all these different people in the audience asking these questions. But if you just had normal hands, you would be like everyone else and you wouldn't be special anymore. And uh, he says, I don't know I don't think he says anything. I think uh or he says I know, I think, and then the uh the interviewer guy, the the TV show host, just like, oh, I think he'd like that. And so even even he doesn't necessarily want to be a tool.
1: Yeah, I think it goes back to this idea of instead of engaging with Edward as a fully complete individual, everyone wants to impose their own wants and desires onto him. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I think that you should have your hands fixed. Oh, but you shouldn't have your hands fixed. Even a lady asks, do you have a girlfriend? Because she only sees Edward as maybe a potential boyfriend. I think... The TV interview is a really good moment where you see all of these people treating Edward as sort of this mirror that reflects what they want out of him. Not what he wants, not what he's thinking, but just what they think he wants or what he's thinking.
0: And it goes back to them not feeling special. It's like, then you'd be like everyone else. Why would you want that? Because we, like, probably in their minds, they're like, we are... Miserable because we have nothing interesting in our lives or whatever. You really want to be miserable just like us? We have nothing special about us. We have no talents, like I said in the beginning. Like we have nothing going for us.
1: Yeah. And I think it's easy for someone with normal hands to say, oh, you shouldn't get rid of your scissor hands because then you'd be n- normal and you wouldn't be interesting. But they're not the ones that live with scissor hands. That's a- incredibly mm-hmm. inconvenient because the world has not been constructed to to allow for someone with scissors for hands to fully function, right? So I think it's it's really indicative of this idea that we often look at other people who are different from us and we just think about all of the good things that come from that difference when we don't really know the whole picture, right? And we can only, if we don't talk to people who are different, we're going to assume things that aren't true and we're going to think that they want things that aren't true and it's only through really treating people as fully formed individual human beings that we can actually get to know who they are.
0: Yeah. And and, and going back to, you know, they had never lived with with scissors for hands. You see a few few big moments. Number one, he doesn't feel like he can even hold the only love of his life, um, although she kind of makes it happen. Even Kim, like Kim makes it happen. And I feel like he realizes in that moment, like, oh, like I can like I, I can continue living my life. <laughs> like the way that i am i don't necessarily need hands i could still hold my loved one maybe not with my hand but <laughs> i can still wrap my arms around him and and she still loves me for who i am which is amazing right and then uh, and then the other a funnier moment but you know you've never had to live with scissors for hands is testing the waterbed and uh, <laughs> just poking a hole right through it and i could just and, and trying to put on like the yeah the first little bit testing the waterbed trying to put on a shirt Uh, like peg needs to help him to even put on a shirt um yeah so anyway just yeah they have they have no idea
1: (laughs) yeah i think that there's probably something in there about um ableism right where if you don't construct a world that functions for people who are different than the quote-unquote typical person then it makes that person's life a lot more difficult but that's for another podcast episode maybe <laughs>
0: okay all right well um do you have any closing comments
1: i just want to say one thing that it. i find really fascinating is when joyce is seducing edward Not she right. plays a song oh yeah that's With these hands.
0: Oh, I think I didn't listen to the words at all.
1: The lyrics are all about what the singer is going to do with his hands. Oh, shoot. I think. Really interesting. And also, I don't know if you noticed this, but I think Joyce is the only one of the women who has really long nails.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And I think that it's really fascinating to think about that comparison to Edward with scissors for hands. And Mm. to what degree do we define people's differences, right? Because she has really long fingernails that are probably cumbersome to an extent. But Edward has scissors for hands. But where do we draw that line? And I think it sort of shadows this idea that we're more similar than we are different. But it just depends on how we look at people and what we focus on. But overall, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought, like I said, there's so much to talk about. But really good commentary that maybe wasn't intentional but you can really pull out of it and so I, I really enjoyed it and i'm excited for the other films we get to discuss
0: well sweet all right so that's edward scissorhands classic 1990 film uh, directed by tim burton written by caroline thompson give her her uh Give her, oh, shoot, what's the word? We went through this through the accolades, accolades. <laughs> and uh, composed by Danny Elfman. Fantastic film. I love it. Highly rewatchable. I, I watched it three times in the span of a month. So, and it just it just never gets old to me. I love it so much. It's so unique and it uh, has great themes, great messages. Go check it out if you haven't. If you haven't watched it, why are you listening to this episode? But our next film, uh we will be talking about, what will it be? October 1st, I guess, because this episode is going live. September 1st. So next month... Sorry. No, it's not. Let me... I think this episode is going up September 6th. Correct. So the first Monday of October, which will be the 4th. And uh, we will be talking about the film The Iron Giant, uh, another film that Big T has not watched. So that's exciting, again, to get his uh, ideas on that one. And uh, so if you guys want to follow along with that episode and write in about it, um, you can write into uh layers of film pod at gmail.com if you have any questions anything that you want to bring up about the film with the iron giant uh i don't know if it's streaming anywhere i'm hoping so Uh, if not you could probably rent it for like four bucks or something like that and uh yeah that'll do it uh that's it baby (laughs) talk
1: to you next month
0: yeah i hope you guys have a fantastic month and uh And don't get into too much trouble. Try to celebrate everything that makes you unique in the world. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.
1: Bye, everyone.